Thank you for choosing to listen to today's message by Reverend Dr. David Entry. We know you will be blessed as you seek and serve God. We believe that this message will stir up a desire for more of God, even as you listen. Be blessed. The true church culture, or I almost wanted to call it Christianity 101, the real church culture, the true church culture, what makes fellowship work, the things that make the Christian fellowship work. We have been called into fellowship. Bible says that in Ephesians, sorry, 1 Corinthians 1, who has called that into the fellowship of his son. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9 or so. Christ has, God has called us into a fellowship of his son. He said, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the koinonia, the fellowship. We have been called into fellowship. That which in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, that which we have seen, our ears have heard, our hands have handled, that which is of the word of life. That is what we communicate to you or we bring to you. Then it says that that ye might have fellowship with us. Why? Because our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. That means that by the mere fact that you are a Christian means that you have been introduced into a fellowship. And once you join us, there is an already ongoing, existing, incessant, unbreakable, unending, constant fellowship between between us and the Father and the Son. So, so he said, our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit is the current that causes this fellowship to happen. So he says, and the sweet fellowship and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, Second Corinthians chapter um, 13, verse 14. And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. So we are in fellowship in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they continued in the apostles' doctrine, breaking of bread, uh, apostles' prayer, their doctrines, their fellowship and breaking of bread. There is a fellowship that must continue. So the scriptures say, let brotherly love continue. There is a fellowship, and for fellowship to continue, for us to have the true church life, for us to have the true fellowship, the true church life is, is a fellowship life. It's a life of fellowship. That is why privacy, it's very detrimental and it's very dangerous to true Christianity. Privacy. There cannot be a true Christian fellowship in a world of privacy. It does not exist. True Christian fellowship is antithetical or is is opposite to a world of privacy, which has become the norm of our day. I'm going to go into that a little bit. But we've been called into fellowship. They continued in the fellowship of the apostles. They continued. They continued. So fellowship, we must continue. That is why Jesus said, go into the world and make disciples. Disciples. There's a difference between members and disciples. There's a difference between attenders, churchgoers, and disciples. There are a lot of people who go to church but are not being, being discipled, are not being schooled in the word of truth and in the, in the, within the fellowship of the brethren. That the core of Christianity has everything to do with fellowship with, with others and with the Father. There's no way you can have a fellow fellowship with the Father, but not with the others. The Christianity means, or the Christian life means, Christianity 101, church life 101 means we have fellowship with the Father, the vertical fellowship and the horizontal fellowship with one another. You cannot say I don't have fellowship with one another and yet as for me, I have my relationship with God. That is a hoax. That's fake. That is not real. It cannot be real. You cannot have fellowship with the Father in the absence of the others. You you can't say I have fellowship with the Father, but I don't have fellowship with the others because Christianity is an us thing. You as us. It's an us life. It's an us life. It's not a me life. It's an us life. So, as you have enjoyed the mercy of God, you are supposed to be faithful to the call of God and to the purposes of God. 
Now watch this. When you study the, the Bible very carefully, I mean, actually, in Bible studies, that's what I was teaching the other time. I didn't mention it, but let me just throw that in. When it comes to Bible studies, there is the, when you read the scriptures, there's what we call the, the narratives, so the storyline. So most of the Old Testaments, you keep, you keep seeing narratives, all right, story. They tell the history, how um, Abraham did this, Isaac did this, Jacob did this, did this, Joseph did this, they went to Israel, and they came out. It's all storyline, storyline. So I remember when I was a child, we were taught the stories of the Bible. And so there are people who know the stories, and because they know the stories, they assume they know the Bible. No, 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 no. Knowing the stories doesn't mean you know the Bible. The storyline is grammar. So it's, it's once it's intelligible and you are able to read or someone is able to even narrate it to you, it makes sense. Well, there, but there are some wonderful, lovely stories in the scriptures. I, I mean, movie lines are amazing and powerful. All right. But so we have the narratives. So for instance, for instance, when you read the New Testament, the New Testament is divided into three major sections. We have the the um this the history section which is Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and Acts. Okay. So the gospels and acts they are just history telling narrating what happened and this happened and this happened it's just so it's called the narratives and then after the narratives we have what uh, the the letters or the epistles Ep no apostles epistles epistles are letters simply with letters so it's interesting when god wanted to teach us how to live the christian life he gave us let letters not lectures because letters are personal letters are written with certain people in mind letters are written to address an issue or to communicate something and so and letters usually are written sometimes as a response to what somebody wants somebody to know which uh, needs to be communicated so letters so we have the epistles and then the last book which is apocalypse the apocalypse so that is futuristic still talking about what is here to come so the new testament has this this three the the the, the, uh, the history books the epistles and the narrative now watch this i mentioned the sorry epistles and the uh, the uh, apocalypse but then the as I said, we have the narratives. So the histories are just narratives. And then we have the didactic. The didactics are more instructive. Instructions, do this, do this. So anytime you read narratives, you can you can read narratives and make uh, uh, doctrines out of narratives per se. The didactics tell us they come to explain or the, the instructions that we are supposed to follow um, largely within the didactics. Yeah, there's some of the stories contain some didactic, didactic, sorry, didactic elements, but in other words, instructions. For instance, the Beatitude, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was telling, do this, do that, do that. So even though it was a storyline, it was history, history record of historical event, it also contains instru contained instructions or contains instructions. So I'm not saying that once it's history, there's no, there are no instructions, but the Bible largely has history and instructions. This is very important. So when you read the book of Romans, for instance, it tells us about how God saved us and the things God, and when it comes to the instructions, it usually tells us about the, what, how things are, how things are, what God has done already. Watch this. Christianity starts with God, doesn't start with man. Never. So anyone who is a Christian didn't start by himself. It was God. Bible says that for those he foreknew, he also predestined. Those he, Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Those he foreknew, he also predestined. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he is the one who did the calling. All right. Bible says we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. First Peter chapter 2, verse 8, royal priesthood, uh, verse 9. We have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. He has called us. So he called us. Bible says that um, um, 2 Timothy chapter 1, um, it, it talks about how um, he called, not by things, by virtue of things we have done, but by his own mercy and goodness, he called us okay, with a heavenly calling or with a holy calling. So we have been called. He called, he did the calling and we responded. In, first, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, it says that for it is God who 
is at work in you both to will and to do. So for you to even choose that I will do the will of God, I'm going to honor God. No, it didn't come from self. It came, it's extra nose. It's outside of yourself. Any desire to do what pleases God is extra nose. In other words, it's outside of self. It's an alien desire. Hallelujah. It's an alien desire. Also, are you trying to say I, did, I didn't do it myself? No. I'm saying you did it yourself, but it didn't start with you. It started with God. God started it in your heart. God sparked it in your heart. Bible Jesus said in John chapter 644 said no one can come to me except the father draws him so if you are with christ if you have come to god if you are born again if you are in church and you are a genuine christian that means that it's god who started it it is god who is at work in you both to do and to uh, to will and to do of his pleasure even the willing he had to he had to provoke it within you that's what i'm saying so christianity does not start from earth it starts from above in other words god starts it being a christian is god uh, <laughs> You are a Christian because it's God's idea. Your being a Christian is God's idea. It's not in, it wasn't your idea first, but it's God's idea first. But what this is, so in the epistles usually it tells us what God has done. God has done this, God has done this, that. but it's not all about what God has done. You can't be a Christian, Christian, there cannot be Christianity without man's involvement. Neither can there be Christianity without God's involvement. It takes God and man to have the church. Let me repeat that. It takes God and man to have the church. The church is a product of God and man. The church is not only God. Only God cannot have church and only man cannot have church. Hallelujah. Thank be to God that we are a combination. The church is a combination. It's an amalgamation. It's, it's a, a, a union. It's actually a union, a oneness, oneness, union between God and man. And that is what makes the church a mystery. Hallelujah. You can take, you can just imagine Holy God taking himself and mingling himself or mixing himself or uniting himself with a, a fallen man. Angels look into this and they marvel. Bible says, which angels love to look into First Peter chapter 1. The angels desire to look into this. Wow, wow. That is why Ephesians chapter 3 verse 10, he says that to the intent, that the purpose of God, the plan, the intention is that um, through the church or by the church, the wisdom of God or the wisdom of God, the multifarious wisdom of God, the complicated wisdom of God, the many sided, many is just like an intricately cut diamond. It has many sides. Any, any, anyhow you turn it, it will, it will glow. Anyhow you turn it in light, that's diamond. So anyhow you look at it, the wisdom of God is very complicated. It's multifarious, multifaceted, many faces of God's wisdom. Hallelujah. How can that be on display? The, the, the many faces of God's wisdom can only be on display via the church. Via the church, according to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. Hallelujah. And then to, to who? Be on display to the principalities and powers in heavenly places, including demons and angels. They all look at you and say, oh, wow, this God is too good. This is, God took us by surprise. We never knew this was in the, God, in the plan of God. The church is an amazing, an amazing entity. So watch this. It is God's idea. It started with God. But it doesn't end with God. Man has a responsibility. So in the book of Romans, after telling, about, about, tell, telling us about what God has done, God has done this, God has done this, God has Then Romans chapter 12. It usually always starts with, therefore, when it's now time for your job. It said, therefore, you see, I beseech you, therefore, my brethren, uh, brethren, that you present, uh, uh, by the message of God, that you present yourself. It's not God who is doing it now. You present yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable before. I beseech you, therefore, Roman, uh, Hebrews chapter Chapter 10. Hebrews has a lot of therefores. After he explains something, he said therefore. He explains, he said therefore. He explains, he said wherefore. One of those such places is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. He says that, wherefore, let therefore let us draw near to God with a true heart, with a, in the full assurance of faith, and he said, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves. So because of what God has done, you too, there's a part you have to play. You can't say, oh, I'm just an object of mercy. Thank you, mercy. Oh, it's just grace, grace, grace. God, Christ has done everything. Oh, Christ did no, please, please. Christ has not done everything. He has done everything it requires for God to accept you. But for you to live in Christ, in God, you have to do it. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. And the life that I live, I live by faith. You are supposed to live in a certain way. And so uh, the point here is that Christ has done it. 
but there's a part he has left for us to do. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, he says that I rejoice in my suffering for you and I fill up in my flesh the afflictions, what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. So when Christ suffered his afflictions, some things were left, which we are supposed to do it. Okay, for the building of the church. When it comes to the building of the church, there are two types of, two two stages of sufferings. The first one is the redemptive suffering, redemptive suffering. That brings justification and redemption. That brings forgiveness of sins. And no one can do that apart from Christ. That is what he came and did. And on the cross, according to John chapter 19, verse 30, he hung on the cross and he said, Tetelestai, which means it is finished. What is finished? I've finished paying the price. I've finished shutting everything out. Everything that is required for God, for man to have access back to God and for God to be in man, everything has been paid for. Now, that is, he said, that is why he said, upon this rock will I build my church. He came to build the church in Matthew chapter 16, verse 16. He said, upon, from, from verse 18, he said, upon this rock will I build my church. I tell you, Peter, you are, you are Peter, and uh, upon this rock will I build my church and the gates of hell. So he came to build the church. And when did he start building the church? When he went to the cross and it was finished. Now the curtain was, was torn in the, the temple. Now the church will be, will be built after the resurrection. So when he resurrected, now God's spirit can live in man which is the beginning of the church. Now, the beginning of the church was initiated by Christ, but we have to now also, there is a part of the suffering that has been left for us to, to, to go through in building the church so that he will reward us for what we have done in glorifying his name and in building the church. Hallelujah. So, I've said a lot in this, this while. So, when you read Romans like that, in Hebrews, you can see, therefore, you to do this. In, in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1 to chapter 3 talks about how what God has done. So I, I, I always talk about it, what God has done in chapter 4 to chapter 6. Ephesians is six chapters. So the first three, what God has done. The last three, what we are supposed to do in the light of what God has done. We can't do it in isolation. We do it in the light of what God has done. Because there's no way you can honor God if you are if the cross is not in view. All right. But Paul says that let from this time forward, let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of Christ. And he says that forbid it. That's what actually Galatians. He said, forbid it, chapter six, forbid it that I should boast save in the cross of Christ, through which I am crucified to the world, and the world is crucified to me. So the, the cross is in view. The cross is in you you can't honor God, you can't live the Christian life in in, in the absence of the view of the cross, the cross must be in view. That is why I said, therefore, looking unto Jesus, the altar and the finisher of, the, of our faith, you can only do it looking unto Jesus. Remember, I says that if we turn to him, if we turn to him, the veil is on, on uh, the, the veil is taken off in first Corinthians, second Corinthians chapter three, verse 17. So you have to turn to him for the veil to be removed. If you don't Turn to Jesus. If you don't look unto Jesus, there is no way you can live any effective Christian life because it's not about self-discipline. Christian life is not about self-discipline. It's not about moral uprightness. Even though all those things will will also be a resultant effect of effective Christian life. It's not just basically self-discipline. It's not basically moral Christian life. It's not basically just being niceness and having a good relation with others, uh, being a nice person in society. That is not basically what Christianity is about. Christianity is about Christ living his life through us. Through our heart as he live his life through us. By us beholding the word. Behold, we all with unveiled faces, as you look up to Christ, with unveiled faces, beholding us in the mirror, the glory are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Hallelujah. And so in Ephesians, it talks about first, first part of Ephesians, salvation worked in. Second part, salvation worked out. First part, what we have been saved by. And second part, what we have been saved for. God has saved us for something. So you can't say I'm saved. So that's there. No, you have been saved for something. We have been saved by something. Salvation has been worked into us. We have to work it out. So when you look at it very carefully. There's always the human responsibility of every effective Christian living. That's what I'm trying to say. There's always a human responsibility of every effective Christian living and it's throughout in the scriptures. But today I want to just zoom in on one part in actually what I'm going to do is I'm going to, by God's grace, expose it 
First um, Thessalonians chapter 5, reading from verse 9. For God has not appointed us unto wrath, but, uh, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. God has appointed us to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is talking about verse 10. Oh, the word of God is so sweet. Verse 10, talking about Jesus. Who died for us? Jesus died for us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 15 it talks about he died for us all so that he we who live must live for him he died for us christ died for us in second corinthians chapter chapter 5 verse 21 says the similar that um he became sin he who god made him who knew no sin to become sin that we might become the righteousness of god in christ jesus so he was on the cross when he was on the cross he wasn't dying his own death he was actually dying our death he don't forget this brothers and sisters he he died for us that we will live for him he died for us so we will live for him. He died for us. In Galatians, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 4. Galatians chapter 1, verse 4 says that, Who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world, according to the will of God and our Father. He gave himself for our sins. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. He gave himself for our sins, not for his sins. He gave himself for our sins. That is why our sins are covered. That is why in the first place we can even be in Christ. That's why we can have a relationship with God. Why? Because someone who loved us enough gave himself for our sins. Bible says that Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died, Romans chapter 5, that Christ died for the ungodly, I think verse 5 or verse 6. Christ died for the ungodly. Verse, verse 8 says that God commended, God demonstrated, uh, God de demonstrated, God displayed, uh, he put on display his love for us in that whilst we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for the unrighteous. Christ died for the unrighteous. It's a serious statement. Christ died for the unrighteous. He died for the unrighteous. So once we come in knowing that our sins have been paid for, somebody paid a heavy price for our sins and we are not meant to be alive, we are meant to be dead, but we come and acknowledge that because of mercy we have been saved, then we don't have a choice but to live to, for his honor. Hallelujah. We live for his honor. And so when you have that in view, no Christian duty becomes too much. When you have the cross in view, no Christian duty becomes too much. But when you shift your focus from the cross and you begin to consider what your entitlement, we live in a generation, an entitlement-minded generation, a generation that is always just de de defined or is, is influenced okay, by entitlement-minded mindedness it's my right this is what that must be done for me this what why even that pastor who is preaching he must preach me happy why is it that's why i don't like <laughs> entitlement so first thessalonians christ died for us it says that who died for us that whether we wake or sleep we should live together with him this is powerful. Hallelujah. Now, when he says that whether we wake or sleep, he's talking about the Christians, we don't die. We sleep. We sleep. Okay. So usually it's a euphemism for saying a, a Christian is dead. He's gone to sleep. So we are, we are asleep because we wake. We wake up. When we sleep, we wake. So in the, the previous chapter in First Thessalonians chapter 4, you remember he spoke, he speaks of how from verse 13, but I will not have you ignorant, brethren, concerning concerning uh, concerning them which are asleep, that you do you not sorrow um, even as others which have no hope. So I'm telling you, so you don't sorrow. So when a Christian dies, he's actually asleep, he's gone to bed, he's sleeping. And he's going to wake up. So for a Christian, it's good night. It's good night. It's not, oh, that's the end. It's not the end. No, 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 no. It, watch this. I'm going to show you something in a minute. It says that verse 14 says that, For if we believe that Jesus died, see, Jesus didn't sleep, he died. He died and rose again. Even so, them also which sleep, not die, which sleep in Jesus will, be, uh, will, will God bring with him. 
For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. So those who are dead, we, we who are alive will not have an, excuse me, have an upper hand, an advantage over them. No, they will all rise and we shall be caught up in the air. So I'm just trying to let you know when he said sleeping, he's talking about, he's talking about dead. So now back to the text, he said he died for us that whether we wake, so we are alive or sleep. So when you talk about we wake, it's talking about we are alive or sleep. We should live together. Watch, this is a very interesting point. We should live together. When, how can a person who is dead live together with him? No, when we are alive, yes. When we are alive, we live together with him. Well, where is he? He's with us. Uh, but you see, it's interesting. On one hand, he's not with us and we are expecting his coming. Because you remember what I, what I just read in chapter chapter 4, verse 15. For this I say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain, we remain unto the coming of the Lord. So the Lord will come. But I thought you said he's with us. Yes, on one hand, in a sense, he's not with us. He is, he is going to come. We are expecting his coming. You, uh, but on another hand, in another sense, he's with us. He said, Lord, I'm with you in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. He said, I'm with you always. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. He said, I'm with you always. So him who is going to come, he's already with us always. And yet he will come. Hallelujah. And yet we are expecting his coming. It's called the parousia, the blessed parousia. We are expecting the coming, the coming of the Lord. We, the parousia means that his presence, his actual presence where we are going to see him physically. We are going to see him as we, in, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called the sons of God. And he said the world does not know us yet because it does not know him. However, when we know that when he appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him face to face or we shall see him as he is. So when he appears, we shall be like him. He's going to appear. There's a day coming when he shall appear. The son of man is coming back. He shall appear. Hallelujah. And we look forward to that glorious day. It's called the hope of his calling. He's called the hope of his calling. It's actually called the blessed hope. In First Peter chapter 1, I think verse 8 and 9 somewhere there. The blessed hope. The, the, the appearing, the, the blessed hope. He says the, the glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to come is the blessed hope. Any Christian who has this hope in himself, 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, he, anyone who has this hope in himself purifies himself and the evil one touches him not. There is a responsibility we have to, we have to put in. We have a responsibility. Oh, I like the way Paul put it in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16. He said, a charge to keep I have. And I said, I have a charge to keep. Necessity is laid on me. He said, if I preach the gospel, I can't boast about it because necessity it is lay on me. Verse 70, woe is me if I preach not the gospel. There is a charge on my life, a charge to keep. I have, there's a song we used to sing. It said, a charge to keep. I have a God to glorify a never dying soul to save and fit it for the skies. Hallelujah. A charge to keep. I have a God to glorify a never dying soul to save and fit it for the sky. We as a Christian, we as Christians, if you're a Christian, there is a charge the heavenly charge over your life and we have to live the life so he says that whether we live so in a sense he's not with us but in another sense he's with us because he said behold i am with you always i am with you always to the very end remember in um second timothy chapter 2 look at second timothy chapter 2 verse 11 it says that it's a faithful saying if we be dead with him we shall also live with him Okay, we live when if we are alive, we are living with him. Hallelujah. And in the book of John, chapter 14, verse 19, it says that um where I, I, I live, I live, and because I live, you will live. Because I live, you will live. So it says that if you are alive, he said those um um Thessalonians, second first Thessalonians again, it says that we who die. Well, uh, uh, for he died for us, whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. So if we are alive, we live together with him. Hall, 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 hallelujah. In Romans chapter 6, verse 5, it talks about, 
how we, if we are dead, we unite with him in his death, we shall also live. Romans chapter 6, verse 5, it says that for if we have been planted into the likeness of his death, we shall be also we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. So this is actually talking about the resurrection life. Because Jesus said, Behold, I live, and you shall also live the same life. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we, we believe that we shall also live with him. Verse 8. If we be dead with Christ, we, we believe that we shall also live with him. Hallelujah. So that our life, on one, uh, Christ on one hand, is, is yet to come. But another, on another hand, he is with us. Let's go back to my, our text. Oh boy, there's a lot to to packed in this. There's so much in the Word of God. Verse eleven, okay. Verse eleven says that wherefore comfort, comfort, comfort yourselves together. All right. Wherefore comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as. Uh, uh, even as also ye do. Do you see the wherefore? Because Christ died for us, therefore, wherefore, let me see how the New King James puts it. New King James says that, um, verse 11, therefore, comfort each other and edify one another. Because Christ died for us, that because of that, therefore, comfort each other and edify. Edifies means to build. Comfort means to edge on. To, to help, inspire, because the Holy Spirit is comforter, comforter. He's our comforter. I, the other time I was explaining the comfort, the word English word comfort is made up of original, uh, I think etymologically, two words, come and forte, come and forte. So come is uh, the Latin word come means with. Forty is the Latin word means strength. It's a fortress. That's why we got fortitude, forty-five, fortress, piano forte, soft and strong. So forte. So comfort. To comfort means that to come with strength. And so when they say that the same Greek word used for the same derivative for the Holy Spirit being our comforter. Okay, he's uh, Aros Paracletos. That's a comforter. But to comfort, uh, I think the the Greek word for um, comforting is uh, something uh, similar. Is Parakaleo. Parakaleo. Okay, to Parakaleo is someone who has been called alongside. So now, when we the Bible says we should comfort somebody, that means call somebody alongside the right path. So comfort, comfort is not like, oh, don't worry, baby, don't worry, baby, don't worry. Oh, I part of it. No, that's not necessarily that. In fact, in the in the British Army, those years ago, the actual word comfort means that there is a chaplain who has like a bishop who comforts the, the, the soldiers to go and fight. So when you go and you fight, like when you watch boxing, the guy goes and it's like side before when he's going, the, his coach, he's passing, come on, you can do it. Come on, go, shake him, go on. You see, so he comforts him. He lets him know that, no, you can do it, boy. You are strong enough. You can handle it. You can deal with this thing. You can, you can forgive her. You can forgive him. You can stop the gossiping. You can stop the fornication. You can overcome this sin. You can, you can deal with this life. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. He said, we should comfort one another. He said, comfort it's there. That's the Christian responsibility. He said, because you are, we are dancing about all this mercy, 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 all this grace, grace, grace God has done. He said, wherefore, therefore, Therefore, comfort each other. You see, Christian life is an each other life. There is about 58 one another's or each other's in the New Testament. 58 times one another, each other, one another, love one another, forgive one another, bear with one another, encourage one another, lie not one to another, kiss one another, uh, encourage one another, comfort one another, you know, uh, give to one another. So, man, one another, because the Christian life is one another life. Is one. That is why I said you can't have genuine Christian fellowship. I'm talking about Christianity 101. I'm talking about the real church, the real church culture. It's a church culture. That must be. But, you know, somebody will say, I, I, I don't like church because all people are, all the people in the church are fake. And sometimes people have tend to have a reason for saying what they're saying because they don't see the church culture. In That is said, that is uh, prescribed in the scriptures. Anything 
that is negative, that is negative and, and contrary to God's work, God's word cannot be church. People in the church sometimes can behave contrary to God's word. It doesn't mean that is the actual culture that Christ has given to us. So don't mix the two. Church is made up of natural, normal human beings who sometimes can be caught in the wrong net or can be caught in their own in them, 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 themselves doing their own things and lose sight and lose track with what God is doing. So in that sense, that we can have pastors and people who may end up not practicing aggressively or constantly, but end up doing something that they shouldn't do, that you will be disappointed. We will be disappointed because we are frail. We are human beings. Okay, so that's why there must be a, the allowance. You must, but we, our job is not, you see, what happens is that people are waiting for someone to come and comfort you. No, it's a comfort one another. It's your job. The one listening to me, you, it's your responsibility to make sure someone is growing strong in the Lord. It says comfort one another and edify. Edify means build. I'm going to go that in, in, into that in a minute. But let's continue the text. I'll show you something. I told you today I'm breaking the text. I'm doing some, uh, I'm, Expository um, teaching here. Now, watch this. Wherefore, comfort 11, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as you also do. That means if you are in church, there should be that element existing already. Watch this. Then he starts by saying, and we beseech you. Beseech means that we beg, we strongly implore you. We strongly implore you. When you read other parts of um, Thessalonians, in fact, in fact, Second Thessalonians chapter three, verse um, verse four. Look at this. It talks about, and we we have confidence in the Lord touching you that you both do and will do the things which we command. It's not a suggestion. It's like when a, a, a judge at court gives an order. That's what the connotes here. When it says we command. The church leader, the apostle said, we are commanding you. Say, so see, verse, verse four said, we command you. Look at verse six. He said, now we command you, brethren. We command you. Look at verse seven. Uh, no, sorry, verse 10. It says that for even when we were with you, we were with you, this we commanded you. You see, look at verse 12. Now, now them that are such, we command and exhort by the Lord. We command you to do something. We command, it's like you have, we are telling you this is what you have to do. That is part of discipleship. Discipleship, you bring, you bring yourself under accountability and command. Instructions. The command must be based purely and truly and authentically on the scripture. Nothing by the scripture. It must be based on the pages of scripture. Clear scripture. Authentically. It's important. Not by somebody's whims. But watch this. And we beseech you, brethren, to know, oh, we command you, we beseech you, we exhort you, we we asking you, we asking you that you are supposed to do something. Oh, church guy, what are you supposed to do? He said, we beseech you, brethren, to know, know what? What should we know? Know them which which labor amongst you and over you in the Lord and admonish you. This is talking about church leaders. Hmm. So the first responsibility, the Christian life, it starts with your relationship between, the relationship between the church leader, for that matter, the pastor, the pastors, the church leaders, and the church members. The church leaders and the church members, there's, there's supposed to be a relationship going on and it begins to tell the relationship. And guess what? When he was going to say, talk about the relationship, this all within the true church culture. There must be a relationship between church leaders and church members, true church culture. And what is the relationship? He starts by uh, implicitly referring to the responsibility of the church leader, of the pastor. See, he said, and we beseech you, brethren, to know them. You are supposed to know them. You have to know them. Knowing here doesn't mean you uh, notice them. Oh, that's one. That, no, 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 no. He said, knowing here means that somebody you have been around, that's why it's good for a pastor to be uh, around a church for a long time. Pastor a church for a, a while. So that people have seen you grow through the time. People have seen how you react to betrayal, how you react to difficult Christ, how you react with your family, with your wife, with your family, with your children, with your leaders. People must learn from, they must know you. They must know you. And it takes a while. It takes a while to know people. He says that, know them. 
So it takes time. Stay in a church long. Know them unless there are issues, there are issues, issues of doctrines, sin in leadership, and um, doctrines, sin in leadership. Yeah, these are the two main reasons why someone might or lack lack of spiritual development. Carnality is reigning in the place. All right, but let's let's leave that. So um, know them which labor. So one, the job of a pastor, labor amongst you. Labor means to work till you are exhausted. <laughs> Those of us who want to be pastors, the way you are spending so much time on social media, I don't think you can do the work. Pastoral work requires a lot of, it's actual work. Pastoral work is so demanding. It's on call. It's an on-call job. It's so demanding, de- demanding, but you can do it very lazily. So it's very easy to be a very lazy pastor. Couch potato pastor. <laughs> Sorry. It's very easy. It's very easy because when you say you are inside your house, inside your room, praying and studying, sometimes no one can say you are not because it's, you are not writing an exam on it, so no one can say you are not studying. But a pastor must labor. A pastor must labor. So listen, if you are not performing, if you are underperforming professionally, okay, maybe you work somewhere, uh, circular work or normal work. You work and you're underperforming and they suck you. Don't say, oh, I think I'll, do, I'll, I'll just go and do a pass. You'll be a failing pastor because, you see, you see hmm, work, the church work doesn't work in the hands of people who don't work. <laughs> so if you are failing, uh, I think, in the Ecclesiastes of Proverbs, is that if you have run with footmen and they have around you, outrun you, how can you run with horses? The, the ministry work is so demanding, it is not a job for a lazy person. It's not, else it also shows. Oh, somebody says, oh, if it's the will of God, the church will grow. It's the will of God for every, <laughs> for every church to grow, okay? All right. So if you want to be a pastor, it calls for laboring labor you work hard in in in, in um in first timothy chapter 5 verse 17 he said let let the elders the same way be counted worthy of double honor especially those who labor and the labor has been specific you labor in the word of god and doctrine labor tirelessly working hard search the scriptures steady hard and whilst you are studying paul said above all these things have been through the daily necessity the daily care of the church second corinthians chapter 11 verse 28 somewhere there i've been through so i've been through shipwreck i've been through bandage danger of bandage and whipped and all that but i said above all these things the what is even stronger the daily the the daily care of the church the care is a lot of work to take care of God's people and help them grow and guide them, let them grow in God's word. Teach them how can you teach what you don't know? How can you teach? Being a pastor is a very hard work. It's not about suits, it's not about ties, it's not about personalities, it's not about style, it's not about gimmicks, it's not about techniques. Techniques don't grow a church. Anytime, anytime someone tries to use technique to grow a church, what you see is not church growth, it's swell. And it's actually not church. Because church Bible says I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the increase. Church growth comes from God when the man of God and the leaders have worked hard. And sometimes the work is so hard, you you will feel tired but not burnt out because the fire of God doesn't consume people. The fire of God keeps people fresh, but physically you feel it. Physically, you have too much time. You want to be a pastor, young man, young lady. You want to be a pastor. You have so much time every time you're on social media. And then, well, I don't understand. Sometimes... When somebody is supposed to be a pastor and is always, you always see him on social media. Everything you comment, everything you like, comment, like, comment, every time. Don't you have anything doing? You have become addicted and attached to gadgets. Gadgets, every time, gadgets, and not that you are even studying on the gadget, but you are just watching what others are doing and commenting on pictures and commenting on things that is not even relevant. What I'm trying to say is, if you have a lot of time for social media, you'll be a very bad and a poor 
Christian leader. Too much time. Too much time. Too much time. That is a lazy way of doing God's work. <laughs> Hallelujah. There's, there's, uh, so, okay. Oh, oh, my time. It says that um, labor. Okay. So, them know those who labor amongst you and are over you in the Lord. So, number one, when the Bible say know, um, know those, verse, the verse 12 again, it said, know those who labor. The word know. Okay, the word no is important to understand that it also means acknowledge. When you read the, uh, I think because of my time, I'll leave it. The English standard version is uses, the English standard version uses respect. Okay, and some, I think let me read from the um, Amplified. Yes, it's right here, I've opened it. The Amplified says, now... Now also we now also we beseech you, brethren, to get to know those who labor amongst you. Recognize them for what they are. Acknowledge and appreciate and respect them all. So acknowledge, appreciate, and respect. Okay, so it says that know them. You have to know them. To know them means you have to acknowledge them. Acknowledge them. Respect them. That's what the scripture says. Respect them. Acknowledge your church leaders. Watch this. It says that um, know them, know them that, oh, let me read from the Amplified. Let me still continue from the Amplified. I think it's, it's a good one. It's a good one. Okay. Recognize uh, uh, them all. Your leaders who are over you in the Lord. So what's the second job of a pastor? To be over the people. To rule. The, 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 there's um, there's uh, some translations you say who rule over you, okay? So rule. There are people who rule. In Romans chapter 12, verse 8, it talks about if you are ruling, okay, rule with diligence. That's seriousness. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, it talks about how those who rule over us, um, we should um we should make their work easy. Some people, when you are pastoring them, it's a lot of work because they are unruly. <laughs> oh, it's true. The Bible knows that. So, about to, if you are unruly, the Bible has already spoken about you. So, you have to change so that you can live. This is Christianity 101, okay? The true and the real, the real, the true church culture. That's what I'm talking about. Um, Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Let me read it. See, it says that obey them that have rule over you and submit yourselves. There are people who have, that's discipleship. There are people who have ruled over you. He said, obey them and submit yourself. So when the Bible said, those who have ruled over you, uh, it said, know them. Uh, let me read it again. It says that um, they labor and they are leaders over you. Uh, leaders who are over you in the Lord, not in the house, in the Lord, not in the government, in the Lord. So their job is to be leading you. Now, that word rule also means to lead to lead so you lead when you lead others follow you leading them means that setting the pace or being an example of what is right being an example of how to do things so when the bible used the word lead it said set an example in doing things first so you are doing things first you are the first to do it you set an example then you your example becomes the ground for your admonishing others your example, you said, become that's what it means to rule over people in the in, in church in Christ. To rule over people means to set to lead by example, so they follow. And so the Bible actually, Paul, the, the scriptures tell the members, the leaders tell the members that follow us in Second Timothy, uh, no, Second Thessalonians, the same chapter three. Um, no, Second Thessalonians chapter three. Look at chapter three, verse six. Um, this is interesting. Verse 7. Let me read from verse 6. Very something interesting there. We now, now we command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that ye redraw yourself. Oh, did he say that? Redraw yourself from every brother. Ah, every Christian. Hey, that's a serious one. He said, redraw yourself. Oh, why? Redraw yourself from every brother that walks disorderly, not after the tradition which we have, uh, which, he, which he has received from us. We, the leaders, we, the apostles, we, the, the, your, your pastor, he says that withdraw yourself from some people who are not working the way we have taught. He's been taught. He said, withdraw. It's in the Bible. 
He said, re- redraw yourself. He said, we com- it's not we suggest. We command you to redraw yourself. Said, Put you on the screen again, you see? Now we command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus, that you redraw yourself from every brother. It's not the world people. Even the brother, well, least even with. The brother who, every brother that works disorderly is working not according to the order. And then look at verse verse, uh, verse 7. For for yourselves know how ye ought to follow us. You are supposed to follow us. Why? Because a leader can tell us, can tell the congregation, follow me. Why? Because he is following Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, said, follow me as I follow Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse, 16, verse 16, it talks about follow us. So 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, talks about uh, um, follow us. 1 Corinthians chapter uh, chapter, um, uh, what did I say earlier? Yeah, chapter 11, verse 1. Yeah, first Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1 says, Follow us. First Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 talks about follow us, follow us. Ephesians chapter 1, chapter 5, verse 1, follow us. Ephesians chapter 5, 1, verse 1, follow us. That what I just read, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 7 says, Follow us. Second Thessalonians chapter um, chapter three verse nine. Verse nine says, "Now because we have not uh, sorry, not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an example unto you to follow us." Did you see that? So when he said lead, it means that uh, rule means that leading by example so others can follow you. And then governing the local church, giving instructions. So it's part all part of it. It's not only just the leading, but be in charge. Make sure things, give instructions, give command. That's why I said we command you. But the commanding doesn't start with your suit. The commanding doesn't start with your big English. The commanding doesn't start with your big tongue. The commanding starts with your example as a leader. You lead by example. May God give us all leaders grace to lead by example. And those leaders God is raising, may God give us all strength and grace and comfort to lead, lead by example. So number one job of the of the pastor is to labor. Number two, responsibility of one responsibility of, to labor. Number two uh, is to rule. Number, number three, let's look at the text again. Um, or in verse 12. Now also, I beseech you, brethren, let me read it from, from King James. It says, and we beseech you, brethren, to know them that labor amongst you and are over you in the Lord and um, admonish you. So they are over you in the Lord. And what do they do? They admonish you. They instruct you. They guide you. They teach you. They, they guide you. They direct you. They give. No, you can't do this. You can't marry this such a person. You can't be doing this. You can't talk to your mother like this. You can't treat your wife like this. You should be doing this. You, it's, good to, it's, it's good to be a faithful tither. It's good to be a giver. It's, it's good to, to serve in the church. Some of all, I don't want anybody to tell me what I'm t- I want to do. And you have heaped your... People have... We live in a generation of people who have heaped to themselves certain type of teachers. Uh, the, this is what I don't understand. You know, there are some people who have made themselves pastors. Cyber pastors, you feel you have a, a cyber church, yeah, people you are pastoring. Yeah, yeah. Christ, real Christian fellowship, eh? real Christian fellowship only thrives in real relationships. One of these days, I really wanted to talk a little bit about this, but maybe I'll continue this message, the next one. The, the, the virtual church experience is not real church. This lockdown... People have been forced, we have been forced to be doing like I'm teaching now, doing virtual, but it's not the real church. There must be a real relationship. You can, listen, you can, you can start, you can do online dating, but it, it doesn't end there. Any online dating that stays there is not proper relationship. It must now, you must meet the person physically. You must, if you want to marry the person, meet the person physically. And then how can you marry somebody online? <laughs> we are married. How did you get married? Uh, it's online. We exchange our vows online, and he lives in America. I also live in, uh, live in Japan, and we are fine. We are fine. We are actually making babies. We will email. We will email our connectivity. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. There must be real relationship, family relationship. You can't have virtual family relationship. Excuse me. You cannot have virtual family relationship. You cannot have virtual family relationship. When mom travels, and if, during this lockdown, maybe someone got 
stuck in another country and they missed each other. And then when they got reunited, that's family. Family, whilst they are away, in the absence of opportunity to meet, it's still family. But the family relationship thrives when we meet together. And so listen, I'm, I hear people say, oh, we have online viewership has increased. All those things, eh? <laughs> Virtual. Someone is okay. Listen to him, and he's in conversation. He's in, he's ironing. He's doing something else, and you are you are in the background. It's not relationship. It's not. We live in a generation where it, the, the the generation we live in, people don't want accountability. People don't want. People people are quite narcissistic. Okay. People are quite self centered. People are. They don't want any commitment. They don't want anything to risk. There's no risk. They want this kind of virtual experience. The virtual experience gives you your own space, gives you your own privacy. You can do it within your own privacy and uh, uh, you can do it. I mean, you don't give, you don't have to give yourself to others. There's no real commitment. There's no sacrifice. There's no, you know, and fellowship, Christian fellowship doesn't thrive in that environment. Cannot happen like that. Christian fellowship requires sacrifice. It requires commitment. It requires giving of yourself, not just your money, giving of yourself to make others better, to make others grow. Bible says that you edify one another. I can't wait for the next, the next session to, to make others others grow, to give of yourself accountability. But we live in a generation, a culture that does not want private, all the, oh sorry, all we want is privacy, no commitment, convenience, anonymity. I don't want people to know. So you can, people can go to a church Zoom and they, they put blank space because you don't want people to, what, what are you doing? Didn't you know the meeting was coming on? Did you not know the meeting was scheduled and you come into a meeting and blank your face and you put a blank space? That's not fellowship, please. That's not, it's anonymity. You don't even, some people even come, they don't want to be seen, they are there. What is your problem? Are you not in fellowship? True church life requires an actual fellowship. So even in the absence of physical meetings, we go to the, we, we, we take it as far as we can to make sure there is this koinonia, continuity of koinonia. Uh, I know I'm agree with that, Pastor, what he's saying. I know you might not because the, the cultural flow has overshadowed and taken over some of us so much. We want unaccountability, low commitment, self-actualization, privacy, convenience. That's all this. That's what, that's what we want. And if we are not careful, when you see... I, I was reading somewhere and I, I came across a statement about how um, communication uh, technology, advancement in communication technology has actually broken down communication among a lot of people. People, is sub, they exist in a sub-world. It's like an, an amoeba, a human amoeba. You can't, you're fluid. You can't, no one knows when you are there, when you are not there, when you are, you do your own thing, you have your own music, you select your own preacher, you select your own preachers, you select your own friends. <laughs> they call it Facebook friends or Instagram. Those are not friends, so <laughs> they are not friends. And uh, young lady, young man, let me advise you don't be, don't be, don't beat yourself because you don't have likes. You don't have likes on social media. It doesn't mean squad. It doesn't add to you, okay? Anyway, I think I will have to end on this. Oh, boy. I just, I didn't go any far, far at all. So, well, so the pastor's job is to labor, number two, to rule, number three, to admonish. And that will lead me to the other part. So he started talking about the relationship between the pastor and the congregation, the pastor's job, and then what the congregation must also do towards the pastor. He says this, let me throw this in briefly and leave. He says, verse, verse, four, uh, verse 13, and esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, not for their personality sake, not for their style sake, but for their work's sake. Esteem them very hard. Some people have problems. So why do you, why, why are you treating the pastor like he's God? He's not God. She's not God. But Bible says esteem them very highly. Some people even treat celebrities, footballers, footballers. They treat them how oh, musicians, movie actors. You are fine when they treat them nicely. But you have a problem when a pastor is treated with. Bible said it's in your Bible. Oh, can't you see? Verse 13, and to esteem them very highly, 
highly, very highly esteem them. I'll continue from there. Esteem the church leader is the church's yeah, church member's responsibility. Esteem the church leader very highly. Christianity 101, the real church life, the true church life. This is important. The true church culture is what I'm talking about. These things are important. So after God has saved us, there's a responsibility. I pray this has been a blessing to you. We thank God for using his servant, Reverend Dr. David to share this awesome word. If this message has blessed you in any way, please spread the word by sharing it and send us an email to amen at charis.org. Remember to stay connected with us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube and Twitter for regular updates on what God is doing here at Charis Ministries.